stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome again to The Long Road Home. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. It's upon us. It is. We hope you're going to enjoy it however you can, wherever you are. Be safe out there, everyone. We know a lot of the parties got canceled. Ours did. Yeah, and you know what? That's fine, okay? Dress up as much as you want. Take all the pictures, but do it in the safety of your own living room. Just eat all that candy that you got for all those kids that aren't coming because yeah. it's COVID. You just eat it all. Fuck those kids. It's your Fuck candy now. those kids. Uh... Okay, so this is our Spooky Stories episode, everyone. We're here to help you get ready for All Hallows' Eve. It's going to be fun. We got some spooky ones. We got some funny ones. It's going to be it's gonna be a blast. So I'm super excited about this. I love scary stories. I have some scary stories of my own I might tell you one day. But for now, we're going to look into some creepypastas for the most part. I like some scary stories. I do too. They're wonderful. Uh, but... Before, But before we begin, I have a real spooky story coming out of Chicago O'Hare International Airport. Huh. Uh, yeah, so the Mothman was there again. What? I don't know if you knew this, but Chicago has become a hotbed of Mothman activity over the past decade. How did he get there? He flew. He's Mothman. <laughs> I mean, I know. <laughs> <He's good. laughs> Well, obviously, Mothman flew there. I just meant more Mothman, like, why Mothman? Well, Mothman doesn't, like, live in... Uh, he's just visiting? You no, know, he lives there now, I guess. Uh, oh, no, okay. He doesn't, like... Mothman doesn't live anywhere in particular. He is a harbinger of bad things to come. He's a bad omen, like uh, the, the Silver Bridge, right? So now he's been hanging out in Chicago. Yep, for a decade now. And oh, shit. Yeah, he's been seen, what is it, 2017, there were 55 sightings of the Mothman in Chicago, and the sightings haven't stopped since. And uh, there's been uh, reports as early as 2011. I had no idea. There have been many at the airport itself. We should be afraid. Yes. Something's going to happen. Everyone should be afraid of Mothman. Not Mothman's afraid of Mothman, up. just of what's going to happen. He's trying to tell us something. Yeah, slowly. He's just edging. Towards, oh, God. He's just edging towards something really bad. Jesus. So... The article comes from singular4teen.com. So it's it's not teen like teenager. It's T-E-A-N. So I don't know what's happening on this website. But according to this report, someone, someone, a United States Postal Service employee that had been working for the Postal Service for 17 years, 15 at Chicago O'Hare, reported this to them. So... The woman doesn't give a name, but she was at the USPS sorting facility in Chicago's O'Hare International Airport at around 11 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th. So she saw this and then it took a little while. She reached out to someone. So these are her words. Uh, I had just left work at the USPS sorting facility at O'Hare Airport at about 11 p.m. on Thursday. The 24th of September and was walking out to my car when I saw something standing at the far end of the parking lot where I usually park. At first, I thought it was a very tall person with a long coat. As I got closer to my car, I unlocked my car, which caused my headlights to come on. My headlights hit the person standing about 20 to 25 feet from my car, causing it to turn and look right at me. Hang on one second. Ladies, wait till you're right up to your car before you unlock it. Don't be doing that shit. Why? Oh, honey. 
I don't know. I, I'm genuinely asking. It's 11 p.m. on a Thursday night, and she's walking out to her car. Assuming I'm assuming that she's alone. As a female walking to your car alone, you have to wait till you're directly next to your car to unlock it. Oh, that's a rule. It's just a rule of thumb. Okay. Uh, interesting. So not interesting. That's sad. So anyway, <laughs> she continues. I saw that this was not some person, but some red-eyed creature, and what appeared to be a coat were actually wings, which it spread out as it turned to look at me. At first, I thought it was some kind of very, very large bird, but I've never seen any bird that stood almost seven feet tall in Chicago. I'm five foot four, and this thing looked taller than me by at least two feet. The thing then started making some kind of chirping sound, almost a half chirp and half click, like someone was clicking their tongue, but much faster. It then made some type of screeching sound and took off running towards me. It got to within 10 feet of me and took off into the air and flew above me. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, so, so, ah, okay. Yeah. Then there's a lot of people have had this similar experience. And the clicking sound has also been reported among people. That is a consistent, mm-hmm. um, yeah, sound in these stories. I was screaming hysterically as I crouched down behind my car's open door and I dived into my car head first. I was in a near panic as I tried to start the car, close and lock the doors and turn on my interior lights. I started my car and took off out of the parking lot and flew down the road until I hit the main road. I got home and told my husband, who also works at the same facility, and he was the one who told me about the sightings of this thing. I was scared shitless, and I hope to never see this thing again. The thing is roaming around the area, scaring people half to death. I hope the airport people decide to do something <laughs> about this damn mothman. Oh, hair, get it together. Yeah, you got to do something about your mothman <laughs> problem. Um, so I think it's really funny that later in this, uh, the person, Manuel, I think, Manuel. Uh, Man- Manuel Navarrete of UFO Clearinghouse, the person who received this report from her, asks her, when I asked her to describe the bean and how it looked or flew, she said she did not look up as as she was too busy flinging the car door open and diving into her car while screaming. Uh, she was really busy doing other shit. And so she has no clear description of the Mothman, but it sure as fuck sounds like the Mothman. It sounds pretty traumatizing. Yeah. I mean... Seeing a Mothman means a lot of bad things. But I know. That's my next question is, what is he trying to say? What is coming? Something. Chicago, look out. It's coming long and it's coming hard. Oh, God. Beware, Chicago. You know, there's a lot of Mothman erotica out there, so maybe uh, someone really enjoyed the story. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just picturing that maybe in the the erotic fan fiction of of the tale, that maybe the woman looks up. Maybe she looks up. And then the Mothman comes back down. And that's all you need to say. We're not writing the, ah, we're not writing the fan fiction. We're not? It sure nope. feels like we we're are. We're just noting okay. that and letting our listeners know that it's out there. If you're if you interested. you Google it, you can Google it. Incognito mode. <laughs> no. Yeah. Maybe maybe don't let your friends know what you've been doing. Because you might lose some, some people you love looking at Mothman peen. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. So, so Emily's going to start us off with the first scary story. What you going to read? That's right. This story is called Psychosis, and it's written by a Mr. Matt Demersky. All right. <clears throat> Prepare, everyone. Just okay. settle in. Get your warm apple cider. Feel the chill in the air. Turn off the lights. Stop thinking about Mothman. And buckle up for some spook. Sunday. I'm not sure why I'm writing this down on paper and not my computer. I guess I've just noticed some odd things. It's not that I don't trust the computer, I just need to organize my thoughts. I need to get down all the details somewhere objective. 
Somewhere I know that what I write can't be deleted or changed. Not that that's happened, it's just... Everything blurs together here, and the fog of memory lends a strange cast to things. I started to feel cramped in this small apartment. Maybe that's the problem. I just had to go and choose the cheapest apartment, the only one in the basement. Basement apartments suck. They too suck. This is, I can really relate to the first part of the story here. The lack of windows down here makes day and night seem to slip by seamlessly. I haven't been out in a few days because I've been working on this programming project so intensively. I suppose I just wanted to get it done. Hours of sitting and staring at a monitor can make anyone feel strange. I know, but I don't think that's it. I'm not sure when I started to feel like something was odd. I can't even define what it is. Maybe I just haven't talked to anyone in a while. That's the first thing that crept up on me. Everyone I normally talk to online while I program has been idle. Or they simply not logged on at all. My instant messages go unanswered. The last email I got from anybody was a friend saying he talked to me when he got back from the store, and that was yesterday. I'd call with my cell phone, but reception's terrible down here. Yeah, that's it. I just need to call someone. I'm going to go outside. Well, that didn't work so well. As the tingle of fear fades, I'm feeling a little ridiculous for being scared at all. I looked in the mirror before I went out, but I didn't shave the two-day stubble I've grown. I figured I was just going out for a quick cell phone call. I did change my shirt, though, because it was lunchtime, and I guessed that I'd run into at least one person I knew. That didn't end up happening. I wish it did. When I went out, I opened the door to my small apartment slowly. A small feeling of apprehension had somehow already lodged itself inside me. Inside me. That's not even what it said. I just made... I said that. Inside. I put inside me. Okay, I'm going to say that. It's inside all of us now. I chalked it up to having not spoken to anyone but myself for a day or two. I peered down the dingy gray hallway, made dingier by the fact that it was a basement hallway. On one end, a large metal door led to the building's furnace room. It was locked, of course. Two dreary soda machines stood by it. I bought a soda from one the first day I moved in, but it had a two-year-old expiration date. I'm fairly sure nobody knows the machines are even down here, or my cheap landlady just doesn't care to get them restocked. I closed my door softly and walked the other direction, taking care not to make a sound. I have no idea why I chose to do that, but it was fun giving in to the strange impulse not to break the droning hum of the soda machines, at least for the moment. I got to the stairwell and took the stairs up to the building's front door. I looked through the heavy door's small square window and received quite the shock. It was definitely not lunchtime. What? Bum bum. City gloom hung over the dark street outside, and the traffic lights at the intersection in the distance blinked yellow. Honestly, we've lived in a basement apartment, and that does, that shit does happen. Where you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, I need a bowl of like, Lucky Charms. You fucking get out there, and the fucking sun's setting. <laughs> I guess it's time to go back to bed. <laughs> yep. Dim clouds, purple and black from the glow of the city, hung overhead. Nothing moved save the few sidewalk trees that shifted in the wind. I remember shivering, though I wasn't cold. Maybe it was the wind outside. I could vaguely hear it through the heavy metal door, and I knew and I knew it was that unique kind of late-night wind, the kind that was constant, cold, and quiet, save for the rhythmic music it made as it passed through countless unseen tree leaves. I decided not to go outside. Instead, I lifted my cell phone to the door's little window and checked the signal meter. The bars had filled up the meter and I smiled. Time to hear someone else's voice, I remember thinking, relieved. It was such a strange thing to be afraid of nothing. I shook my head, laughing at myself silently. 
I hit speed dial for my best friend Amy's number and held the phone up to my ear. It rang once, but then it stopped. Nothing happened. I listened to silence for a good 20 seconds, then hung up. I frowned and looked at the signal meter again, still full. I went to dial her number again, but then my phone rang in my hand, startling me. I put it up to my ear. Hello? I asked, immediately fighting down a small shock at hearing the first spoken voice in days, even if it was my own. I had gotten used to the honing drum of the building's inner workings, my computer and the soda machines in the hallway. There was no response to my greeting at first, but then, finally, a voice came. Hey, said a clear male voice, obviously of college age like me. Who's this? John, I replied, confused. Oh, sorry, wrong number, he replied, then hung up. I lowered the phone slowly and leaned against the thick brick wall of the stairwell. That was strange. I looked at my received calls list, but the number was unfamiliar. Before I could think on it further, the phone rang loudly, shocking me yet again. This time, I looked at the caller before I answered. It was another unfamiliar number. This time, I held the phone up to my ear but said nothing. I heard nothing but the general background noise of a phone. Then, a familiar voice broke the tension. John? was the single word, in Amy's voice. <clears throat> I breathed a sigh of relief. Hey, it's you, I replied. Who else would it be, she responded. Oh, the number. I'm at a party on 7th Street, and my phone died just as you called me. This is someone else's phone, obviously. Oh, okay, I said. Where are you, she asked. My eyes glanced over the drab whitewashed cylinder block walls and the heavy metal door with its small window. At my building, I sighed. Just feeling cooped up, I didn't realize it was so late. You should come here, she said, laughing. Nah, I don't feel like looking for some strange place by myself in the middle of the night, I said, looking out the window at the silent, windy street that secretly scared me just a tiny bit. I think I'm just going to keep working or go to bed. Nonsense, she replied. I can come get you. Your building is close to 7th Street, right? How drunk are you? I asked lightheartedly. You know where I live. Oh, of course, she said abruptly. I guess I can't get there by walking, huh? You could if you wanted to waste half an hour, I told her. Right, she said. Okay, have to go. Good luck with your work. Amy, get the fuck off the phone! Your girl's here throwing her guts up all over my carpet! Is that the party in the background? That's the party. That's the party. I lowered the phone once more, looking at the numbers flash as the call ended. Then, the droning silence suddenly reasserted itself in my ears. The two strange calls in the eerie in the eerie street outside just drove home my aloneness in this empty stairwell. Perhaps from having seen too many scary movies, I had the sudden inexplicable idea that something that something could look in the door's window and see me. Some sort of horrible entity that hovered at the edge of aloneness, just waiting to creep up on unsuspecting people that strayed too far from other human beings. I knew the fear was irrational, but nobody else was around, so I jumped down the stairs, ran the hallway into my room, and closed the door as swiftly as I could while staying silent. Like I said, I feel a little ridiculous for being scared of nothing, and the fear has already faded. Writing this down helps a lot. It makes me realize that nothing's wrong. It filters out half-formed thoughts and fears and leaves only cold, hard facts. It's late. I got a call from a wrong number, and Amy's phone died. So she called me back from another number. Nothing strange is happening. Still... There was something a little off about that conversation. I know it could have just been the alcohol she'd had, or or it was even her that seemed off to me, or was it? Yeah, that was it. 
I didn't realize it until this moment, writing these things down. I knew writing things down would help. She said that she was at a party, but I only heard silence in the background. Of course, that doesn't mean anything in particular, as she could have just gone outside to make the call. No, that couldn't be it either. I didn't hear the wind. I need to see if the wind is still blowing. So, at this point, this is basically just someone in quarantine. Yeah, it's all of us. It's all of us in quarantine. (laughs) We miss human contact. We miss... We're just bored in our rooms. We all just want to be able to love again. Yeah, they're living the hashtag quarantine life. But something's a little... They're just getting a little spooked. What's it called? Agoraphobic. Yes. Okay, Monday. I forgot to finish writing last night. I'm not sure what I expected to see when I ran up the stairwell and looked out the heavy metal door's window. I'm feeling ridiculous. Last night's fear seems hazy and unreasonable to me. I can't wait to go out into the sunlight. I'm going to check my email, shave, shower, and finally get out of here. Wait. I think I heard something. Bum bum. It was thunder. That whole sunlight and fresh air thing didn't happen. I went out into the stairwell and up the stairs only to find disappointment. The heavy metal door's little window showed only flowing water as torrential rain slammed against it. Only a very dim, gloomy light filtered in through the rain. But at least I knew it was daytime, even if it was a gray, sickly, wet day. I tried looking out the window and waiting for lightning to illuminate the gloom, but the rain was too heavy, and I couldn't make out anything more than vague, weird shapes moving at odd angles in the waves washing down the window. Disappointed, I turned around, but I didn't want to go back to my room. Instead, I wandered further up the stairs, past the first floor, and the second. The stairs ended at the third floor, the highest floor in the building. I looked through the glass that ran up the outer wall of the stairwell, but it was that warped, thick kind that scatters the light. Not that there was much to see through the rain to begin with. I opened the stairwell door and wandered down the hallway. The ten or so thick wooden doors painted blue a long time ago were all closed. I listened as I walked, but it was the middle of the day, so I wasn't surprised that I heard nothing but the rain outside. As I stood there in the dim hallway listening to the rain, I had the strange fleeting impression that the doors were standing like silent granite monoliths erected by some ancient forgotten civilization for some unfathomable guardian purpose. Lightning flashed, and I could have sworn that just for a moment the old grainy blue wood looked like rough stone. I laughed at myself for letting my imagination get the best of me, but then it occurred to me that the dim gloom and lightning must mean there was a window somewhere in the hallway. A vague memory surfaced and I suddenly recalled that the third floor had an alcove and an inset window halfway down the floor's hallway. Excited to look out into the rain and possibly see another human being, I walked over to the alcove I walked over to the alcove finding the large thin glass window. Rain washed down it as with the front door's window, but I could open this one. I reached a hand out to slide it open but hesitated. I had the strangest feeling that if I opened that window, I would see something absolutely horrifying on the other side. Everything's been so odd lately, so I came up with a plan, and I came back here to get what I needed. I don't seriously think anything will come of it, but I'm bored, it's raining, and I'm going stir-crazy. I came back to get my webcam. The cord isn't long enough to reach the third floor by any means, so instead I'm going to hide it in between the two soda machines in the dark end of my basement hallway, run the wire along the wall and under my door, and put black duct tape over the wire to blend it in with the black plastic strip that runs along the base of the hallway's walls. I know this is silly, but I don't have anything better to do. Well, nothing happened. I propped open the hallway to stairwell door, steeled myself, then flung the heavy door wide open and ran like hell down the stairs to my room and slammed the door. 
I watched the webcam on my computer intently, seeing the hallway outside my door and most of the stairwell. I'm watching it right now, and I don't see anything interesting. I just wish the camera's position was different so that I could see out the front door. Hey, somebody's online. I got out an older, less functional webcam that I had in my closet to video chat with my friend online. I couldn't really explain to him why I wanted to video chat, but it felt good to see another person's face. He couldn't talk very long, and we didn't talk about anything meaningful, but I feel much better now. My strange fear has almost passed. I would feel completely better, but there was something odd about our conversation. I know that I've said that everything has seemed odd, but still, he was very vague in his responses. I can't recall one specific thing he said. No particular name or place or event, but he did ask for my email address to keep in touch. Wait, I just got an email. I'm about to go out and I just got an email from Amy that asked me to meet her for dinner at the place we usually go to. I do love pizza, and I've just been eating random food from my poorly stocked fridge for days, so I can't wait. Again, I feel ridiculous about the odd couple of days I've been having. I should destroy this journal when I get back. Oh, another email. Oh my god. I almost left the email and opened the door. I almost opened the door. I almost opened the door, but I read the email first. It was from a friend that I hadn't heard from in a long time, and it was sent to a huge number of emails, but that must have been every person he had he had saved in his address list. It had no subject, and it said simply, Seen with your own eyes, don't trust them, they. Goddamn chain emails. Did you ever get those? Oh, yeah. The one with the spooky girl with the knife that would kill you if you didn't forward it along? Chain mail? Sounds like one of those. Or like, you'll get a lot of money this year if you forward this on to 10 friends my yeah. grandparents really liked the ones that were just talking about like horrible things that could happen to you not like a girl with a knife but like um this don't man. pick up a water bottle by the side of the road because it's filled with battery acid and it's gonna explode in your face yeah that's they this I, man got found out the hard way <laughs> not to pick up water bottles send this to 15 of your friends or you'll shit your pants later tonight Yep, that's what it was like back in the day. I don't. I miss old emails. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> what the hell is that supposed to mean? The words shocked me, and I keep going over and over them. Is it a desperate email sent just as something happened? The words are obviously cut off without finishing. On another day, I would have dismissed this as spam from a computer virus or something, but the words, seen with your own eyes... I can't help but read over this journal and think back on the last few days and realize that I've not seen another person with my own eyes or talked to another person face to face. The webcam conversation with my friend was so strange, so vague, so eerie now that I think about it. Was it eerie or is fear clouding my memory? My mind toys with the progression of events I've written here, pointing out that I have not been presented with one single fact that I did not specifically give out unsuspectingly. The random wrong number that got my name and the, su the subsequent strange return call from Amy, the friend that asked for my email address. I messaged him when I first saw him online, and then I got my first email a few minutes right after that conversation. Oh my god. That phone call with Amy. I said over the phone, I said I was within a half hour's walk of 7th Street. They know I'm near there. What if they're trying to find me? Where is everyone else? Why haven't I seen or heard anyone else in days? No, no, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. I need to calm down. This madness needs to end. I don't know what to think. I ran about my apartment furiously, holding my cell phone up to every corner to see if it got a signal through the heavy walls. Finally, in the tiny bathroom near one ceiling corner, I got a single bar. 
Holding my phone there, I sent a text message to every number in my list. Not wanting to betray anything about my unfounded fears, I simply sent, You seen anyone face to face lately? At that point, I just wanted any reply back. I didn't care what the reply was or if I embarrassed myself. I tried to call someone a few times, but I couldn't get my head up high enough, and if I brought my cell phone down even an inch, it lost signal. Then I remembered the computer and rushed over to it, instant messaging everyone online. Most were idle or away from their computer. Nobody responded. My messages grew more frantic, and I started telling people where I was and to stop by in person for a host of barely passable reasons. I didn't care about anything by that point. I just needed to see another person. I also tore apart my apartment looking for something that I might have missed. Some way to contact another human being without opening the door. I know it's crazy. I know it's unfounded. But what if? What if? I just need to be sure. I taped the phone to the ceiling in case. Tuesday. Fuck, dude. This has been two days. <laughs> yep. Two long, boring, Whew. boring days. <laughs> I think those not sound too boring to me. <laughs> he starts to, uh, yeah, he's getting in his own head. Yeah. He, he might be having a panic attack. This might be just one big giant panic attack. The phone rang. Exhausted from last night's rampage, I must have fallen asleep. I woke up to the phone ringing and ran into the bathroom, stood up on the toilet, and flipped open the phone taped to the ceiling. This sounds like a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> I think panic attack is a very broad term for what's been happening here. Have you ever taped a phone to a ceiling no, out of a panic but attack? but I've wanted to like clean my ears a, out for no reason. Have you ever put a webcam up against your door because you were afraid to open it? Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. Is there something you're not telling me? I've done a lot of weird things in the throes of panic attack. Mostly just trying not to die. Yeah, that's what I, that's what comes to mind here. Gotta put the webcam up or my heart's gonna explode. Okay, so who's calling? Let's see. It was Amy, and I feel so much better. She was really worried about me and apparently had been trying to contact me since the last time I talked to her. She's coming over now, and yes, she knows where I am without me telling her. I feel so embarrassed. I'm definitely throwing this journal away before anyone sees it. I don't even know why I'm writing in it now. Maybe it's just because it's the only communication I've had at all since God knows when. I look like hell, too. I looked in the mirror before I came back in here. My eyes are sunken, my stubble is thicker, and I just and I just look generally unhealthy. My apartment is trashed, but I'm not going to clean it up. <laughs> I need someone else to see what I've been through. Okay. Okay. Maybe maybe just a light. Just a just a quick run through though. Maybe we just clean it up real quick. No, he needs people to see the stress of his life. Weird flex, but okay. Look how stressed I've been. <laughs> um, these past few days have not been normal. I am not one to imagine things. I know I've been the victim of extreme probability. I probably missed seeing another person a dozen times. I just happened to go out when it was late at night or in the middle of the day when everyone was gone. Everything's perfectly fine. I know this now. Plus, I found something in the closet last night that has helped me tremendously. A television. I set it up just before I wrote this, and it's on in the background. Television has always been an escape for me. Same. <laughs> and it reminds me that there's a world beyond these dingy brick walls. Why has he not noticed the TV before? That's what I want to know. Yeah, how'd you not know you had a TV, bruh? He's just been the panic in the throes Still. of something's not right. Can't find your TV? The panic. You want to hang a webcam up outside in your hallway? Panic. Just blame it all on the panic. You've been smoking a lot more cigarettes lately. This Thinks was also written. It's the panic. This was also written 10 years ago, by the way. FYI. So this is like Did pre- this man know the future? 
pre-quarantine <laughs> times. All right. Okay. I'm glad Amy's the only one that responded to me after last night's frantic pestering of everyone I could contact. She's been my best friend for years. She doesn't know it, but I count the day that I met her among one of the few moments of true happiness in my life. I remember that warm summer day fondly. It seems a different reality from this dark, rainy, lonely place. I feel like I spent days sitting in that playground, much too old to play, just talking with her and hanging around, doing nothing at all. I feel like I can go back to that moment sometimes. It reminds me that this damn place is not all that there is. Finally, a knock on the door. I thought it was odd that I couldn't see her through the camera I hid between the two soda machines. I figured that it was bad positioning, like when I couldn't see out the front door. I should have known. I should have known! After the knock, I yelled through the door jokingly that I had a camera between the soda machines because I was embarrassed myself that I had taken this paranoia so far. After I did that, I saw her image walk over to the camera and look down at it. She smiled and waved. Hey, she said to the camera brightly, giving it a wry look. It's weird, I know, I said, in- I said into the mic attached to my computer. I've had a weird few days. Must have, she replied. Open the door, John. I hesitated. How could I be sure? Hey, humor me a second here, I told her through the mic. Tell me one thing about us. Just prove to me you're you. She gave the camera a weird look. Um, all right, she said slowly, thinking. We met randomly at a playground when we were both way too old to be there. I sighed deeply as reality returned and fear faded. God, I've been so ridiculous. Of course it was Amy. That day wasn't anywhere in the world except in my memory. I've never even mentioned it to anyone, not out of embarrassment, but out of a strange secret nostalgia and a longing for those days to return. If there was some unknown force at work trying to trick me, as I feared, there was no way they could know about that day. (laughs) Ha, all right, I'll explain everything, I told her. Be right there. I ran to my small bathroom and fixed my hair as best I could. I looked like hell, but she would understand. Snickering at my own unbelievable behavior and the mess I've made of the place, I walked to the door. I put my hand on the doorknob and gave, and gave the mess one last look. So ridiculous, I thought. My eyes traced over the half-eaten food lying on the ground, the overflowing trash bin, and the bed I tipped to the side looking for God knows what. I almost turned to the door and opened it, but my eyes fell on one last thing. The old webcam. The one I used for that eerily vacant chat with my friend. Its silent black sphere lay haphazardly tossed to the side, its lens pointed at the table where this journal lay. An overwhelming terror took me as I realized that if something could see through that camera, it would have seen what I just wrote about that day. I asked her for any one thing about us, and she chose the only thing in the world that I thought they or it didn't know. But it did. It did know. It could have been watching me the whole time. I didn't open the door. I screamed. I screamed in uncontrollable terror. I stomped on the old webcam on the floor. The door shook and the doorknob tried to turn, but I didn't hear Amy's voice through the door. Was the basement door made to keep out drafts too thick? Or was Amy not outside? What could have been trying to get in if not her? What the hell is out there? I saw her on my computer through the camera outside. I heard her on the speakers through the camera outside. But was it real? How can I know? She's gone now. I screamed and shouted for help. I piled up everything in my apartment against the front door. Friday. At least, I think it's Friday. I broke everything electronic. I smashed my computer to pieces. Every single thing on there could have been accessed by network, access, or worse, altered. I'm a programmer, I know. Every little piece of information I gave out since this started, my name, my email, my location, none of it came back from outside until I gave it out. 
I've been going over and over what I wrote. I've been pacing back and forth, alternating between stark terror and overpowering disbelief. Sometimes I'm absolutely certain some phantom entity is dead set on the simple goal of getting me to go outside. Back to the beginning, with the phone call from Amy, she was effectively asking me to open the door and go outside. I keep running it through my head. One point of view says I've acted like a madman, and all of this is the extreme convergence of probability. Never going outside at the right times by pure luck. Never seeing another person by pure chance. Getting a random nonsense email from some computer virus at just the right time. The other point of view says that extreme convergence of probability is the reason that whatever's out there hasn't gotten me already. I keep thinking. I never opened the window on the third floor. I never opened the front door. Until that incredibly stupid stunt with a hidden camera, after which I ran straight to my room and slammed the door. I haven't opened my own solid door since I flung open the front door of the building. Whatever's out there, if anything's out there, never made an appearance in the building before I opened the front door. Maybe the reason it wasn't in the building already was that it was elsewhere getting everyone else, and then it waited until I betrayed my existence by trying to call Amy, a call that didn't work until it called me and asked me by my name. Terror literally overwhelms me every time I try to fit the pieces of this nightmare together. That email, short, cut off, was it from someone trying to get word out? Some friendly voice desperately trying to warn me before it came? Seen with my own eyes, don't trust them. Exactly what I've been so suspicious of, it could have masterful control of all things electronic, practicing its insidious deception to trick me into coming outside. Why can't it get in? It knocked on the door. It must have some solid presence. The door... The image of those doors in the upper hallway as guardian monoliths flash back in my mind every time I trace this path of thought, this path of thoughts. If there is some phantom entity trying to get me to go outside, maybe it can't even get through doors. I keep thinking back over all the books I've read or movies I've seen trying to generate some explanation for this. Doors have always been such an intense focus of human imagination, always seen as wards or portals of special importance. Or perhaps the door is just too thick? I don't know that I couldn't bash through any of the doors in this building, let alone the heavy basement ones. Aside from that, the real question is, why does it even want me? If it just wanted to kill me, it could do it in any number of ways, including just waiting until I starve to death. What if it doesn't want to kill me? What if it has some far more horrific fate in store for me? God, what can I do to escape this nightmare? A knock on the door. I told the people on the other side of the door, I need a minute to think and I'll come out. I'm really just writing this down so I can figure out what to do. At least this time I heard their voices. My paranoia, and yes, I recognize I'm being paranoid, has me thinking of all sorts of ways that their voices could be faked electronically. There could be nothing but speakers outside simulating human voices. Did it really take them three days to come talk to me? Amy is supposedly out there along with two policemen and a psychiatrist. Maybe it took them three days to think of what to say to me. The psychiatrist's claim could be pretty convincing if I decided to think this has all been a crazy misunderstanding and not some entity trying to trick me into opening the door. The psychiatrist had an older voice, authoritarian but still caring. I liked it. I'm desperate just to see someone with my own eyes. He said I have something called cyberpsychosis, and I'm just one of a nationwide epidemic of thousands of people having breakdowns triggered by a suggestive email that, quote, got through somehow. I swear he said got through somehow. I think he meant 
I think he means spread throughout the country inexplicably, but I'm incredibly suspicious that the entity slipped up and revealed something. He said that I'm part of a wave of, quote, emergent behavior, and that, and that a lot of other people are having the same problem with the same fears, even though we've never communicated. That neatly explains the strange email about eyes that I got. I didn't get the original triggering email. I got a descendant of it. My friend could have broken down too and tried to warn everyone he knew against his paranoid fears. That's how the problem spreads, the psychiatrist claims. I could have spread it too, with my text and instant messages online to everybody I know. One of those people might be melting down right now after being triggered by something I sent them, something they might interpret any way that they want. Something like a text saying, seen anyone's face, seen anyone face to face lately? The psychiatrist told me that he didn't want to, quote, lose another one, and that people like me are intelligent, and that's our downfall. We draw connections so well that we draw them even when they shouldn't be there. He said it's easy to get caught up in paranoia in our fast-paced world, a constantly changing place where more and more of our interaction is simulated. I have to give him one thing. It's a great explanation. It neatly explains everything. It perfectly explains everything, in fact. I have every reason to shake off this nightmarish fear that something or consciousness or being out there wants me to open the door so it can capture me for some horrible fate worse than death. It would be foolish after hearing that explanation to stay in here until I starve to death just to spite that entity that might have got everyone else. It would be foolish to think that after hearing that explanation. I might be one of the last people left alive on an empty world, hiding in my secure basement room, spitting some unthinkable, spiting some unthinkable deceptive entity just by refusing to be captured. That's a perfect explanation for every strange thing I've seen or heard. And I have every reason in the world to let all of my fears go and open the door. That's exactly why I'm not going to. How can I be sure? How can I know what's real and what's deception? All of these damned things with their wires and their signals that originate from some unseen origin, they're not real. I can't be sure. Signals through a camera, faked video, deceptive phone calls, emails, even the television lying broken on the floor. How can I possibly know it's real? It's just signals, waves, lights. The door. It's bashing on the door. It's trying to get in. What insane mechanical contrivance? What insane mechanical contrivance could it be? Could it be using to simulate the sound of men attacking the heavy wood so well? At least I'll finally see it with my own eyes. There's nothing left in here for it to deceive me with. I've ripped apart everything else I can. Or excuse me, I've ripped apart everything else. It can't deceive my eyes, can it? Seen with your own eyes, don't trust them, they wait. Was that desperate message? telling me not to trust my eyes, or warning me about my eyes, too. Oh my god, what's the difference between a camera and my eyes? They both turn light into electrical signals. They're the same. I can't be deceived. I have to be sure. I have to be sure. Oh man, what's it gonna do? Ooh, I don't like where this is going. Date unknown. I calmly asked for paper and a pen, day in and day out, until it finally gave them to me. Not that it matters. What am I going to do? Poke my eyes out? The bandages feel like a part of me now. The pain is gone. I figure this will be one of my last chances to write legibly, as, without my sight to correct mistakes, my hands will slowly forget the motions involved. Huh. So they did it. They did it. 
poke their eyeballs out. Ooh. Why? Why did they? Why? Why could they not just go? Well, you know, maybe that's not. My eyes deceive me. Not not smart. Not a big brain move. This is a sort of self indulgence. This writing. It's a relic of another time because I'm certain everyone left in the world is dead, or something far worse. <laughs> I can just see it, just like, <laughs> just fucking scribble it all over the wall. He's like, thank God I have this paper <laughs> and pen. <laughs> just a fucking chopstick. He's just scraping along the wall. Chad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let me finish the story okay. before you talk shit. <laughs> I sit against the padded wall day in and day out. The entity brings me food and water. It masks itself as a kind of nurse, as an unsympathetic doctor. I think it knows that my hearing has sharpened considerably now that I live in darkness. It fakes it fakes conversations in the hallways on the off chance that I might overhear. One of the nurses talks about having a baby soon. One of the doctors lost his wife in a car accident. None of it matters. None of it's real. None of it gets to me, not like she does. That's the worst part, the part I almost can't handle. The thing comes to me masquerading as Amy. Its recreation is perfect. It sounds like Amy, feels exactly like her. It even produces a reasonable facsimile of tears that it makes me feel on its lifelike cheeks. When it first dragged me here, it told me all the things I wanted to hear. It told me that she loved me, that she had always loved me, that it didn't understand why I did this, that we could still have a life together if only I would stop insisting that I was being deceived. It wanted me to believe, no, it needed me to believe that she was real. I almost fell for it, I really did. I doubted myself for the longest time. In the end though, it was all too perfect, too flawless and too real. The false Amy used to come every day and then every week and finally stopped coming altogether. But I don't think the entity will give up. I think the waiting game is just another one of its gambits. I will resist it for the rest of my life if I have to. I will resist it for the rest of my life if I have to. I don't know what happened to the rest of the world, but I do know that this thing needs me to fall for its deceptions. If it needs that, then maybe, just maybe, I am a thorn in its agenda. Maybe Amy is still alive out there somewhere, kept alive only by my will to resist the deceiver. I hold on to that hope, rocking back and forth in my cell to pass the time. I will never give in. I will never break. I am a hero. The doctor read the paper the patient had scribbled on. It was barely readable, written in the shaky script of one who could not see. He wanted to smile at the man's steadfast resolve, a reminder of the human will to survive, but he knew that the patient was completely delusional. After all, a sane man would have fallen for the deception long ago. Oh, shit! <laughs> Sorry. The doctor wanted to smile. He wanted to whisper words of encouragement to the delusional man. He wanted to scream, but the nerve filaments wrapped around his head and into his eyes made him do otherwise. His body walked into the cell like a puppet, and he told the patient once more that he was wrong and that there was nobody trying to deceive him. The end. Whoa. <gasps> what a twist. Pretty good. That was pretty good. I wouldn't rip my eyes out. <laughs> that was it. That was the only reason that he didn't get to that he was. I mean, I guess it wasn't the only reason he was he was delusional. That's why he didn't get to see because he was crazy. But like, but that was part. Of, that was supposed to be part of it. 
was seeing they them. needed the eye holes they needed the eye holes maybe they needed the eye holes or uh-huh. that was like like seeing them was something that was part of it so he ripped his eyes out yeah and they threw him in a, a crazy bin and just fed him weird it's like a pet rat maybe he's a thorn in its agenda could be we'll never know nope but spooky story number mm. one down nice <laughs> <laughs> all right well it's my turn I am going to be reading one of my favorite stories from when I was little. It's from a book called Bruce Covell's Book of Monsters, Tales to Give You the Creeps. Apparently, it's a little like younger than I thought it was. It's from July 2000. Um, But this is, I guess, when the story made first appearance. It's a pretty creepy story for like even like a younger person, I think. But I always really liked it. And I read it on the radio when I was radio DJ. Uh, This is a story called... Uncle Joshua and the Grugel Men by Deborah Doyle and James D. McDonald. Uh, so, your jimmies are properly rustled now. It's time to really creep you out. <laughs> <clears throat> In the first year came the plague. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I did not expect you to start out that way. Okay, okay, okay. In the first year came the plague, and in the tenth year the burning, and afterwards came the Grugel men out of the Deadlands. A history of the New World from the beginning to the present day by Absalom Steerforth, speaker of the Amity Crossroads Assembly. Next we have a small poem. Grugel men, Grugel men, take one in three. Grugel men, Grugel men, don't take me. It's a children's counting outright from the foothills district of our region. Daniel Hinchard was 16 and a bit, and Lizzie Johnson was almost 14 when the Grugel Man came down out of the mountains into the new settled country. The Grugel Man came between haymaking and harvest time on a moonless night when the lighting, lightning flashed and the thunder boomed across the hills. In the dawn, a column of smoke rose from the Johnson homestead off to the east. Those of the Hinchards who were eating breakfast in the kitchen saw the smoke and made up their minds to go have a look. They would see the trouble and help if they could, for the Hinchers and the Johnsons were kin as well as neighbors. The Johnson place was more than an hour away to run and longer at a walk. It was mid-morning before the farmhouse came into view, and what the Hinchers saw then was as bad as could be. The whole house was burnt, and the ashes gone white from burning out without being quenched, the outbuildings too, and never a sight of living man or beast. The farmyard told the rest of the story. Nine burned patches in a straight row, nine tidy black rectangles on the hard-packed earth, and in each rectangle, a lump of burnt bone and blackened meat. Dan Hinchard said later that you could tell which one was which, almost. The big one would have been Raffy, who was tall, and at the end of the row, the little patch no more than two feet long and half that wide, that one would have been the baby. Its bones were gone entirely. Yeah, so pretty intense coming from a storybook that also has like, my teacher was a troll. Um... (laughs) The Grugelman said, <clears throat> The Grugelman said, Ant Men Hinchard. There's only nine here, Sam Hinchin said. He was the oldest of the Hinchard brothers and Dan's father. There were ten Johnsons. Sometimes the Grugelman take one back with him to the castle, said Bartolome Hinchard, Ant Men's husband and Sam's brother. There's worse things than being dead, and that's one of them. I hear sometimes the Grugelman get hungry. Who is it that's missing? asked young Dan Hinchard. Lizzie, said Uncle Joshua. He'd been standing by, saying nothing, for that was his way. None of her size here, he said, nodding at the row. 
Uncle Joshua wasn't anyone's blood uncle, but a wanderer who'd come by the Hinchard farm one day, two winters gone, traveling on foot from some place farther north. He wasn't much of a farmer, but when he went off into the woods for a day or a week at a time with his long footlock rifle, he always came back with meat. He brought in more than enough food to earn his keep, and in the evenings by the fireside he told marvelous stories of distant lands. So he stayed on and became part of the family by courtesy, if not in fact. Aunt Min said he was only waiting for Lizzie Johnson to grow old enough for a husband, and then they'd both be off to whatever foreign place it was whose accent still marked Joshua's speech. Dan Hinchard had always hoped that Min was wrong, because Lizzie had been like a sister to him while they were young, and he would miss her sorely if she grew up to marry an outlander and leave the settlement. But even that was better than being dead, or a prisoner of the Grugelman. We have to bury them, Sam Hinchard said. You bury them, said Uncle Joshua. I'm off to find the girl. You can't, Aunt Min told him. You're a hunter, but the Grugelmen leave no footprints to trace. They fly through the air by night. Min's right, said Bartolome. The Grugelmen see in the dark and you can't hide from them. No one has ever been to their castle and come back down again. That's where you're wrong, said Uncle Joshua. The Outland's accent was strong in his words. One man at least has been to their stronghold and come back, for I've done it. Then there's never a man done it twice, Bartholomew said, and when he finds where you've come from, he'll follow you back and kill us too. Uncle Joshua shook his head. He'll not trace me. How can you say that? It said, <clears throat> How can you say that? Said Aunt Men. Everybody knows that when a Google man asks you a question, you have to tell him the truth. Can't help yourself. But Uncle Joshua only slung his rifle over his shoulder and said, What's worse, being taken by the Google men or knowing that nobody will ever come to win you back? No one answered. Dan Hinchard said afterward that his father Sam looked sad and ashamed, but Bartolome and Aunt Min never so much as blinked an eye. Is it Bartolome? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Bartolome. So Dan said to Uncle Joshua, I'll come with you, because he understood what the answer to the question was. It was worse, far worse, to be abandoned. Uncle Joshua frowned at him. You don't know what you're saying. Stay home with your father. Walk beside you or follow behind you, said Dan. It makes no difference to me. I'm no safer at home than on the road. As you will. Uncle Joshua turned without a further word and walked off to the north, and Dan walked beside him. And they're off. And they're off to the Grugelman's castle to find Lizzie. The two walked a long way over hills and through a mountain gap past where Dan had ever heard of anyone going or anyone coming from. For eight days they walked. Whatever was going to happen to Lizzie has happened by now, Dan said. She's dead for sure. Uncle Joshua looked at him with an angry expression. If you want to go home, go now, and never let me see your face again. Tomorrow, or the next day at the last, we'll pass beyond the living lands, and then it will be too late to turn back, you pussy. <laughs> they went on, but... <laughs> I added that. I know. <laughs> uh, they, they went on, but it was two more days, not one, before they crossed over the border into the Deadlands. Dan could see why the name was given. The ground here was jumbled and broken stone, and the trees were stunted and misshapen where they grew at all. The sounds of birds and tracks of beasts were left behind as well. The air itself smelled dead, like the taste of licking metal. At the end of the first day, Dan asked, Is it like this much longer? Don't talk, Uncle Joshua said. The Grugel men can hear you. They didn't light a fire in the dark that night, nor was their food beyond what was in their pouches, gathered in the days when they'd been walking through fertile country. The next morning, they journeyed onward, but they walked warily, and if Uncle Joshua had moved like a hunter before, now he moved doubly so, and at times vanished from Dan's sight altogether. And then, without warning, a vast rushing sound filled the air. 
Dan looked about wildly for help, but Uncle Joshua was nowhere to be seen. Dan cowered beside a rock which rose slab-sided out of the barren dirt, and when he lifted his head again, a Grugel man stood before him. The Grugel man had a wrinkled skin, all dirty white like fungus, and huge glistening eyes over a round and wrinkled mouth. It shuffled when it walked, and Dan could hear a breathing, a loud hissing noise like a tea kettle on the hearth. The creature took Dan and bound him and carried him over hard and blackened fields to the castle of the Grugelman, where the great gate shut behind them. Then the Grugelman laid its misshapen hands on Dan's shoulders and looked him full in the face and spoke, and Dan couldn't understand a word of what it said. The dungeon cells beneath the castle were carved each from a solid piece of stone, and the air was full of whispers of far-off voices speaking too low to be understood. The Grugelman took Dan there and left him. Though he was not bound, he felt no desire to escape and in the small part of his mind, which was still his own, he knew he was under a spell. So they got Dan. They got him. Grugelman, creepy as fuck. One of my, like, earliest brain memories, I think, is like my conception of what the Grugelman looked like based off that little description. Ooh, do you get any nightmares? Yeah, I think so. Probably. Yeah. I'm fucking sure. <laughs> I was like eight when I read this. Uh, no, it's, I was like ten when I read this. Uh, I literally could not be eight because it was in 2000. No, yeah. Um... He didn't move, even when the Grugelman pulled out a claw and tasted his blood, and he didn't try to run when the Grugelman left him and the doors stayed open. Nor did he move when the Grugelman returned and, in a voice that was harsh and strangely accented, asked him from where he came and why. Dan tried to remain silent, but he answered every question that was put to him and told of Lizzy, of Uncle Joshua, of the Hinchard farm, of his family, and his friends. Nothing was secret, and the Grugelman was quiet except for its hissing and gurgling breath as it listened. But what wasn't asked, the spell couldn't force Dan to betray. So the Grugelman never asked or learned that Dan expected Uncle Joshua to come to Lizzie's rescue and to his. The dungeon of the Grugelman was never dark. The light there was cold and unnatural, coming from torches which burned without smoke and never seemed to flicker or be diminished, but at last Dan slept. When he awoke, Uncle Joshua was standing at his feet. Am I the only one that's like kind of picturing just a really wrinkly gray alien? <laughs> It's like a saggy-ass alien. Just like a really wrinkly, wrinkly whitish-gray alien. I always pictured, like, a pile of mud, like white mud. Ooh. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. No form? Well, I mean, kind of like like, uh, like Creature from the Black Lagoon, but gotcha. covered in mud. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's spooky. You've come, Dan said. Uncle Joshua put his finger to his lips and helped Dan stand. They went out of the cell into a corridor lit by the weird pale fires going past open doors and closed doors and colored lines and paintings of black and yellow flowers. The wind sighed around them and brought to their ears the muttering of far-off voices. How did you find me? Dan asked as they went. You've not been here long, Uncle Joshua whispered back. Finding you was easy. It's lazy will be hard to find. Did you see her? Or did the Grugelman tell of her? No, Dan said. Then it's up to us to find her. Can you walk faster? Dan nodded. Come on then, Uncle Joshua told him. We'll live as long as we're not seen. Are we going home without Lizzie? No, said Uncle Joshua. They went on deeper into the castle, with Uncle Joshua walking a little way ahead, watching in all directions. He carried his rifle in both hands across his chest, with the hammer back and the flint poised above the pan like a wild animal's sharp fang. Can Grugelman be killed? Dan asked. We may yet find out, Uncle Joshua said. Now hush and help me search for Lizzie. If she lives, it will be our doing. And so they walked for a long time, silent, through the maze of rooms and corridors and halls, upstairs and down ramps, in the castle of the Grugelman. 
Some doors were open, some were locked, and at last they came to a place where they heard a girl's voice weeping. Uncle Joshua held up his hand to call a halt and began to step carefully forward. Slowly, he looked around the corner of the passageway, then gestured for Dan to come join him. He'd found a door, and the weeping voice was on the other side. But the door was locked, and it had neither latch nor keyhole. What now? Dan asked. We'll see, said Uncle Joshua, and cried out in a loud voice. Lizzie, is that you? The wheezing stopped. Who is it? Came a girl's voice from the other side of the door. It's us, Dan called. Dan Hinchard and Uncle Joshua. We're here to bring you home so you can fuck my uncle. Get away, Lizzie shouted back. Get away before... <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> uh... <laughs> It's us, Dan called. Dan Henchard and Uncle Joshua. We're here to bring you home. Get away, Lizzie shouted back. Get away before it's too late for you. It's too late for me already. The Google man can see me here. He'll see you too if you stay. Open the door. I can't. There's a spill on it. Only the Google man can pass through. The Google man, Uncle Joshua muttered. He'll let me in and you out. Lizzie, call the Google man. Call him loud. Call him now. Google. Google. <laughs> no. Yes, he gave you the words to say to bring him. Say them now. How do you know what the Grugel man did? Dan asked. I know, Uncle Joshua replied. Come now. He walked back to the corner and sat against the wall where he could look in both directions. There, he waited, and Dan Hinchard waited with him until at length a shuffling noise sounded in the corridor. Then the Grugel man appeared, walking its slow and clumsy walk, its feet barely clearing the floor and its head moving from side to side as it looked about. Uncle Joshua stood and raised the rifle to his shoulder. Stand where you are! The Grugelman seemed to see Uncle Joshua for the first time. It halted, and its massive head shook slowly from side to side. There was no expression in its blank eyes, and its tight, wrinkled mouth never moved. But the hissing of its breath stopped, and its hands, with their fat white fingers extended, rose up to the level of the Grugelman's thick waist as if to push Uncle Joshua away. Uncle Joshua jerked his head in the direction of the closed door. Open it. The Googleman shook its head again. The rifle fired. A flash of white smoke rose up from the pan and a cloud of smoke came out of the barrel and a noise like a thunderclap echoed in the cold stone hall. Uncle Joshua didn't pause. He slung the rifle on his shoulder and dashed forward even as the gun smoke thinned and cleared, torn away by the castle's undying wind. The Googleman lay splayed out on the floor with a huge red stain all over the white height of its torso. Uncle Joshua reached out and grabbed the Googleman under the shoulders and pulled it upright. Help me, he yelled at Dan. Dan took the Grugelman by the arm. The dead skin was cold and slimy to his touch and loose upon the bones beneath. He and Uncle Joshua carried the Grugelman to Lizzie's cell, and Uncle Joshua threw the body forward against the closed door. Whatever spell had let the Grugelman in and out still worked, and the door opened as the carcass touched it. The Grugelman fell into the open doorway, and Dan saw that more blood ran from a hole in its gray-white wrinkled back. Wait here, Uncle Joshua said, and entered the room. A moment later, he reappeared, carrying Lizzie Johnson in his arms. Her eyes were closed, and she was trembling. Run, he said. But the Grugelman is dead, said Dan. Run! A distant voice began to chant, echoing through the corridor, speaking words Dan couldn't understand. He ran, and Uncle Joshua ran with him, moving lightly in spite of Lizzie's extra weight. Together, <laughs> that's rude, uh, <laughs> together they... <laughs> Together they headed back the way they had come, through passages and rooms, while a keening sound echoed about them as of inhuman things mourning, and the chanting voice never stopped. Another Grugelman appeared, coming around a corner and shambling toward them. Uncle Joshua did not slow, but instead swung Lizzie to the floor, and in the same movement unslung his rifle and slammed the butt of the weapon into the side of the Grugelman's head. The Grugelman fell. 
They can't see much of anything to either side, Uncle Joshua muttered to Dan, but he didn't explain how he knew. You take Gleazy on ahead. A hundred paces? No more. Wait for me there. What will you do? Uncle Joshua had his knife out. A hunter wears the skin of his prey to get closer to the herd. Now go! Oh, shit! Yeah, he's about to skin this fucker. He put the knife to the Grugelman's throat and pushed it up until the red blood came. Go! Dan helped Lizzie to her feet and supported her as they walked on, while the voices in the air mourned and chanted, and wet sounds came from behind them where Uncle Joshua worked. Before they, before they had gone the hundred paces, Uncle Joshua joined them again. As he had promised, he was dressed in the skin of the Grugelman, with nothing to show he wasn't real except his face poking out of the wrinkled white neck and the dribble of blood running along the loathsome hide. He carried the skin of the Grugelman's head still dripping in his hand. Now we go, Uncle Joshua said. They walked on. Later, he brought them to a halt and said, Don't look. He moved out of sight behind them, and in a moment, his breath began to hiss and bubble. Dan could guess what he had done. He'd pulled on the skin of the Grugelman's head like a mask, enduring the blood and the foulness for the sake of the disguise. Dan and Lizzie walked on, with Uncle Joshua shuffling clumsily behind them in his stolen skin until they came to the castle door. Yet a third Grugelman stood there, and the door was closed. Uncle Joshua called aloud, speaking a strange language in a harsh and hissing voice, and the Grugelman turned away. The door opened when Uncle Joshua touched it. Together, he and Dan and Lizzie walked out of the Grugelman's castle and into the night. The three of them never went back to the Hinchard farm. They buried the skin of the dead Grugelman under a rock at the edge of the Deadlands and journeyed onward to the south, where there were towns and fishing villages all along the coast. Aunt Min had been right about one thing, at least. When Lizzie grew a few years older, she married Uncle Joshua, and the two of them started their own clan. Dan lived with them, and in time, he brought home a wife from among the fisherfolk. Later, when he was very old, he would sometimes tell children about his adventures in the castle of the Grugelman, and how Uncle Joshua won back Lizzie Johnson after she had been stolen out of the living lands. But one thing he never did tell, that he learned by looking back over his shoulder when he should have been helping Lizzie walk away. When you take the skin off of a Grugelman, what you see isn't blood and meat and pale blue bone. What you see looks as human as you or me. There's a small little uh, notation. Number five, TS, Implementation. Biologic Sampling and Sterilization Command, BSSC, is hereby established under direction of SECEC. Existence of this command shall be closed hold to avoid alarming of civilian population. Full biologic safety is a priority. Assigned personnel shall wear full anti-contamination suits to include boots, gloves, gas masks, and self-contained breathing apparatus at all times when in contact with non-approved environments. NXK to Oregon 4B, top secret, Norfolk Wintel, distribution list, alpha only. What? That's a good, that's one of my favorite, like, spooky stories growing up. Uh, so yeah, they just killed a dude. They just <laughs> killed people. Yeah, so I, I, some sort of event happened. And things got weird, essentially. But I love it because you don't see the twist coming until then. At least, I mean, it, it, when you're 10 years old, you don't. No. <laughs> I'm right. reading through it again. It's like obvious. There are some signs that like something fucking kind of weird is going on. The lights that weren't flickering. That's what I was thinking. I was like, light bulbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like in reality, these were just like peasant folk after some sort of terrible event. And the people trying to save them, as in many cases, were now the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And so they just killed them. Uh, I don't know why they were burning them. Maybe it was a virus. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, so. 
These are these are uh, poignant stories in very, the year 2020. Very poignant. Um, <laughs> and that's my story. So, well done. all right, guys. I'm hanging in there. I know we've just terrified you all to shit. As if you weren't scared enough already. We're going to lighten the mood a little bit with our last two stories. The first one is called Full Size Candy Bars. There's a point in your life when the things that have happened to you just become stories. I don't mean that they are less important or that they didn't happen, but they just turn into that thing that happened once. No matter how much it affected you, it's just a story. Even if you're the one who survived. Five years ago, when we were 15, my best friend Andy and I decided to go trick-or-treating one more time. I know we were probably too old and the adults in the neighborhood would roll their eyes when we showed up, but we figured they would give up the candy because kids our age were more likely to mess with their house if they didn't get free chocolate. Andy and I weren't like that at all, but it didn't make us any less likely to embrace the idea. Free candy is free candy. Hell yeah, it is. Being of that age when lazy becomes an art form in itself, Andy and I weren't just going to go out only to find that we were getting crappy stuff like butterscotch candy or the sort of stuff you'd see in grandma's candy dish. Leave that for what our parents did. This is the digital age. If you know what to look for, and with even basic social media skills, you can actually get your route mapped out for you in advance. Even four years ago, kids were all over Twitter, posting pics and putting up hashtags where the really good candy was. It's probably more Instagram now. We looked for a hashtag full size. While it sounded like a good idea at the time, it also led to more than a few pictures of dudes naked below the waist. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> full size, baby. Just be careful um, out there on the on the interwebs. You gotta be careful with your hashtags. You never know what you're gonna get when you start looking up. Uh, you know, non-trending, non-trending hashtags, <laughs> off-brand, off perhaps maybe some double entendres. Right. Uh, it's no. like um, <laughs> it's like uh, when you make a wish with a genie. You gotta be careful about your wording. Yeah, like you're just, you just want to <laughs> see some meat, so you go big meat. Nope. I'd fucking love sausage. Don't do that. <laughs> Hashtag love sausage. <laughs> Don't. I mean, you live your best life, but. Yeah. I just want to have Tread a lemon party. Carefully. Hashtag lemon party. <laughs> oh, no. Don't look it up. They knew what they were doing. It wasn't a foolproof way to find the candy, but it worked a l- It worked at least a little bit. We were able to find a neighborhood not too far from Andy's house that had four different stops with full-sized candy bars. <laughs> we each had three different masks. You know, the cheap, thin, plastic kind that gets held onto your head by an even cheaper and thinner piece of elastic or rubber band. They were only a buck a piece at the local dollar store, and we got more than that back in chocolate just from those few houses. Sure, by the third time the parents got the clue, but what difference did it make? By the time we actually went out, only an hour had passed until most of the houses were turning off their lights or blowing out the candles in their pumpkins. We went out a bit later than other kids because we were older, and of course that meant we couldn't be out at the same time as the little kids. Andy was scrolling through Twitter, trying to see if there were any other houses close by that we could hit up and wasn't having much luck. I was looking through what had turned out to be a pretty epic haul when he nudged me with his elbow and held out his phone for me to see. Hey, there's one more, he said, his voice muffled behind his white skeleton mask. I looked at the screen and saw a picture of three full-size snicker bars on a picture with the hashtag full size. Andy scrolled his thumb across the screen and showed the address. It was about two miles away, which, where we lived, meant that it was out in the middle of nowhere near the edge of the woods. Dude, I said, that's way out there. We won't get there before they go to bed. Andy shook his head. Nah, check it out. He kept scrolling his thumb to all the people who had replied to the picture. 
No one was going out there. Everyone was saying it was too far or creepy or whatever. If they went through the trouble of getting full-size candy bars and barely anyone showed up, they are for sure going to wait up. I bet it's some lonely geezers who just, want to, who just want people to remember they're alive. I hesitated. I really didn't want to go that far out. It was cold out, and as I watched, the thick clouds of breath came out from behind Andy's mask. Two miles? I asked. Andy proceeded to goad me with some of the more off-color insults I'd ever heard, none of which meant anything to me until he pointed out that if no one was going there, they would probably just give us a bunch of candy without needing to do the mask routine. Finally, I agreed. If nothing else, it would make for a good story. We can make it sound even better, maybe even live-tweet it and see if people could make it go viral. We talked about doing that the entire walk there, how we could make it seem like we were in the middle of a scary movie. Going up to the house, hashtag creepy. There's some weird music playing inside, hashtag what the fuck. That sort of thing, just trying to get people to pay attention. Even if they were asleep, we could take some pics or something and make it seem like a big deal. What else were we going to do? Except that we forgot most of that by the time we got there. The house was even further back in the woods than I thought. The start of the driveway seemed about a half mile from the road to the house, and there was a slight bend in it, so you really couldn't see the house beyond a light that was in one of the windows. We didn't stop at the road or anything that dramatic, and I think that as much as we had excited ourselves at the idea of the Twitter thing, we were also tired and just wanted to get the candy and go home so we could watch scary movies. As long as the driveway was, it felt like a fast walk. I didn't take my eyes off the door from the moment we could see it. There was just the one light on in the side of the house. I think it was the garage light, and it shone out the window so you couldn't actually see anything inside. There was a carved pumpkin with a flickering flame on the stoop, but it was really poorly done. Like a little kid or some old person with palsy tried to make it. Oh, jeez, judgmental. Yeah, very. I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a good descriptor. I mean, I it's didn't a know people descriptor. were judging our pumpkins that harshly, excuse me. And there was a lock on the door. I don't mean like a deadlock, but one of those five-button things you see attached to the doors of houses that are for sale. See? Old people. They keep that on there in case they lock themselves out or something, Andy said in a tone that didn't sound all that sure. But it sounded good enough to me as my arm reached out to press the doorbell. The sound of the ding-dong had barely stopped when the door cracked open. Andy and I stood there, not a single word between us as we stared at what we could only assume was a man in the doorway. He was about average height, a little overweight, but he was wearing this weird mask. It had squinting eyes and really fat cheeks and a puckered mouth, like it was trying to hold its breath. Behind the man was a single exposed red light bulb that backlit him. He just stood there, wheezing with each breath behind the mask as he slowly turned back and forth looking at each of us. I'm not sure which of us spoke first, but eventually we each remembered to say trick or treat. The man stood there for at least another minute, looking back and forth between Andy's skull mask and my fox mask before turning around and walking deeper into the house. Andy and I looked at each other. Even though I couldn't see his eyes, I imagined they had the same confused, terrified look as mine. When we looked back, I could see the man pick up a box of candy bars. As he slowly turned back to the door, his arm hit a railing, and he grunted as the box flew out of his hands, the candy bars spilling out onto the ground. A few actually slid within a foot of the door. The man grunted and cursed as he bent over to pick them up. Andy and I didn't move from where we were on the front step until the man turned around. He was on his hands and knees picking up the candy bars and Andy nudged me, pointing at the candy that was just inside the door. I think I shook my head, but I can't remember. A moment of panic overtaking me. I just wanted to leave, so I reached inside the door to grab the candy. 
The man's back was still turned and I knew I could just grab a bar and we could take off running, splitting up if we needed to. Why he would chase us I had no idea, but we were pretty worked up by that point. It all happened in a matter of seconds. As my hand touched the smooth, cool wrapper of the candy bar, I felt a vice grip clamp down on my wrist so hard I thought it would break. The man had spun in place and grabbed me. He had been way closer than I realized. Something about the light in my mask messed with how well I had seen him. In one smooth motion, he tugged my arm and I went flying into the door. But as soon as he pulled me past him, my body falling to the ground like a lump, he lunged at Andy. Something flashed in his hands. Andy had turned to run and suddenly crumpled to the ground. The man stood over him, still breathing insanely loudly, his breath a cloud in front of his face. As I was trying to get up, he turned and I saw what was in his hand, a taser. That's the last thing I remember before waking up again outside of the house. My body ached and my head was killing me. My face was cold too. I realized that I wasn't wearing my mask. I looked around desperately for Andy, but I was all alone. The front door of the house was closed. The pumpkin was gone off the front step. The lights were off. I scrambled to grab my phone, but that was gone too. I was just about to start running when the panic shifted in me and I realized that Andy might be in the house still. Yeah, he could have run away, but what if he didn't? As quietly as I could, I went around the house trying to look into the darkened windows, but I couldn't see anything. I was too scared to knock on the door. I mean, it wasn't a prank. The son of a bitch had used a taser on Andy. When I had almost done a complete lap, I thought I saw something moving in the dark. I cupped my eyes to the window and almost, and almost passed out as the fat, round mask burst toward the window, thumping the forehead against the glass. I let out a scream and it just stayed there, staring at me. Then it looked down at the side next to him and I watched as something white lifted into view. It was a skeleton mask, Andy's skeleton mask, and there was something splattered on it, something red. I ran. I ran until my legs gave out and I tumbled against the first house I found that had all the lights on. I was gasping and crying and begging them to call the police. By the time the police got out to the house, there was nothing there. No man, no Andy. All they found was the splintered door frame from where the back door had been kicked in. I hadn't even noticed that in the dark. If I had, maybe I would have done something instead of running away like a coward. I later learned that the lock was on the door because the house had been foreclosed on a week prior. The Twitter account that Andy and I had found was a week old as well. If we had bothered to look, we would have seen that the account followed over 1,000 people and had all of 15 followers. All of the tweets were retweets from other legit accounts except for the picture of the candy bars. It was registered in the name of a kid who went to a nearby middle school, but that was just a lie to throw people off, to lure someone in, and it had worked. I cried as I told the strangers whose house I ran to what happened, begging them to call the cops. I cried when I told the cops and my parents what happened. I cried as I tried to understand why any of it happened, why he let me go, why he only took Andy. It's been five years since Andy disappeared and there's been nothing, no response. Every year I sit on Twitter and I look up the hashtag, hashtag full size, <laughs> checking everything out, making sure it isn't a lie or a lure. I've called the police more than a few times thinking I found the guy, but mostly, mostly I'm just looking for my friend so I can stop telling this story and start living my life again. The life I lost the day Andy disappeared, all for a full size candy bar. What would you do for a Klondike bar? Look at thick peen. Oh my god! All over Instagram. Chat, Jesus. That's what they did. Uh, that's what he did. That's what he did. He was checking everything out. And every year he goes back and checks it out again, just in case. 
uh, Andy's dead bodies there, I guess. Um, it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. No. Maybe the last one we have for you today will be a little bit better. Okay. This one is called Creamsicle House, written by A.E. Madden. It was beautiful, really. Pale yellow walls, bright orange shutters, and a big white door. I liked it. I called it the Creamsicle House. Even in those hot summer days, it never melted. Huh. It never yeah. dripped or drizzled, runny and sticky over your hand. It just sat there in the sun, day after day, looking sweetly delicious. <laughs> I remember sitting in the front yard of my childhood home. We had a simple brick house then, like many others on the street, and dreadfully dull compared to the creamsicle house. I would sit on the lawn, hands perched on the wooden fence along the sidewalk, peering over to look at the frozen treat. I wanted to touch it. I wanted desperately to trace my fingers on the yellow siding, swing the orange shutters open wide, and place my palms upon the big white door and push it ever so slightly, enough to open it, just a little, so that I could squeeze through the crack. What is that thing when you love something that's inanimate? Object sexuality. He wants it. Or objectophilia. He wants to just squeeze up in this house. I had to see inside. I climbed over the fence, and my bare feet hit the blazing concrete. I winced but kept walking. Entranced by the dazzling gleam of the house in the afternoon light, I made my way up the walkway and onto the front steps. The porch was creamy white, immaculate. There were no plants or statues or even a swing, just a blank slate of nothingness. I loved it. I approached the door. It loomed over me, a tall, magnificent entrance. I put my hand on it. It felt I felt smooth wood, no cracks or splinters or chips. I felt the milky center that I'd gazed upon for so long. Okay, There was no doorknob, no bell or knocker. It was a naked piece of paper. I pushed it open. It was dark, I could tell. I stepped inside and closed the door behind me. (laughs) Of course you could tell. (laughs) (laughs) Something seems seems wrong. I could tell. I can tell it's dark in here. (laughs) It was so cold, almost freezing. Outside, it had been the middle of the summer, but upon entering the house, I was immediately shivering. I felt my hot breath in front of me. Just like a nice, cold creamsicle, I thought. Perfectly frozen. A perfect treat for a summer day. (laughs) It was also exceptionally dark. Just like I thought. I could make out a large foyer before me and maybe even a staircase behind, but there were no lights on. I felt for a switch in the wall, but found nothing. I moved a little further inside. For years, my mother and father had warned me about the creamsicle house, just as parents do, I suppose. They told me it was Do a they? <laughs> stay away from the creamsicle house. I don't think anyone ever told me to stay away from a home. They were just happy I came back and wasn't dead. One time we went caroling growing up and there was this one lady who cursed at us out of her window and flipped us all off. And so then we were told just to not go near that lady because she just didn't like us or kids. But now looking back, it's like, I don't Leave I don't, me alone. No I, one, she just wanted is, to be left alone. Just, yeah. But we did avoid no that one, house. We kind nobody of gave has wide, wanted carolers a for wide decades. Birth. For decades, no one's wanted to see a caroler. Let just, me share yeah. my Christmas joy. Just, yeah. Fucking no one needs that. We're all miserable. Let us be miserable. Oh, my God. (laughs) They told me it was a bad place with bad people. 
and to never cross the street. I obeyed, yet I remained fascinated with the structure. I never saw anyone come or go into the house. No mail ever came. No one trimmed the lawn. No one ever even acknowledged its existence, except my parents. The house was a mystery, one I needed to solve. And here I finally was. In the darkness, my feet found the bottom of what was indeed a staircase. I placed my hand on the railing and began my ascent when suddenly I saw a light. There was a light at the top of the stairs. It was small and flickering, but I was thrilled to see some sort of light. I called out to it. Hi up there, I yelled. I wasn't afraid. Why would I be? Why would such a beautiful, sweetly sugary-looking house be scary? I think mother and father were jealous of it. I think everyone was. It was the nicest house on the whole street, and everyone else's were so boring. They wanted to keep me away because life was better here. It was sweeter. The light began to move towards me, slowly. It was a grand staircase with several spirals. The light bobbed and danced until stopping just a few feet above me. Behind the flickering, I could make out a silhouette, a shadow. Something was there. I can't see you, I said, hoping to get a better look at the figure. Maybe they lived here? Maybe I would meet my new best friend? The shadow moved closer, and in the light, I saw the body of a man. I saw a pair of hands come out of the dark and grip the railing, and then a face came forward into the gap between the bars. I saw his face. He had a thick, greasy stubble and a big, raw scar on his chin. In fact, his whole neck was raw with red scabs and scratch marks. Hello down there. He flashed a smile with almost no teeth, just a rotten blob of gum. He licked his lips with a slimy, pale tongue, and his eyes were sickly yellow that constantly shifted side to side. Do you live here? I asked. Oh, yes, he said. Do you want to come upstairs? I struggled to contain my excitement. What? <laughs> no, no. The no. Cream, I sickle me, Daddy. Um, Chad, oh, my God. I could not express how badly I wanted to climb the stairs up to the tippy top of the creamsicle bar. I wanted to taste the wonder of its secrets. I wanted a bite of the creamy, gooey orange goodness. Oh no. I stepped forward. What's your name? The man asked. Jack, what's yours? He licked his lips furiously. I'm the ice cream man, he said. Of course! He was in charge of the creamsicle house. He had it all to himself. I was so jealous. I wanted an ice cream house, too. I didn't want to ask how to get one, because then he would know I wanted it. I kept it to myself and started walking upstairs. As I got closer to the ice cream man, I began to see his clothes. He had on torn blue jeans that were very dirty and stained with what looked like red paint. He wasn't wearing any shoes, just like me. His shirt was long sleeve. That's how I knew we'd be best friends. His shirt was long-sleeved and unbuttoned, and I saw his chest was red and scratchy, just like his neck. He held out his hand. His fingers were long, way too long. They were silly. What? He, he did not know how to clip his fingernails, and there was red paint under them, too. I know why you're here, he said, his tone turning dark and almost mean. He was on to me. I realized that I was now incredibly warm and sweating. I felt the sweat on my armpits and hoped that Ice Cream Man wouldn't see through my shirt. You, you do? I whispered. Oh, yes, Jack. I've seen you staring. His expression lightened. His eyes were glowing bright yellow. I know you want a taste. My <laughs> eyes widened. Yes, it was all I wanted. A bite of the frozen deliciousness. Come upstairs, Jack. I have a treat for you. He said with a wet smile. He was drooling a little. I thought it was funny. I grabbed his hand. Oh, no, Jack. I felt a 
piercing sting all the way up my arm. My body was on fire. It's the gonorrhea that 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 man definitely had. Just Um, instant. I tried to pull away, but I couldn't. My hand was stuck, clasped into his grip, his nails digging into my skin. I felt blood pull out of my palm and run down my arm. It was cold like freezing rain. He pulled me closer. I saw his face more clearly now. The snake-like eyes were fixated upon me, his forehead and cheeks burning bright red. He opened his mouth and I saw the flick of his tongue and his dirty slimy gums. And when I felt his breath, it was cold and sweet. It smelled of sugar, of fresh milk and of undeniable orange. I felt a wave of nausea, and my body collapsed to the floor. My hand still firmly grasped into his, and then I blacked out. Ugh. What's happening? I think we all know what's happening. When I awoke, I felt cool grass on my arms and feet. I was staring up at a cloudless sky, bright blue and sunny. I lifted my head and looked around, finding myself on the front lawn of our little brick house. My head was pounding, and my body ached. I turned toward the fence and looked out between the wooden gap across the street and over into the lot where the creamsicle house should be. Should be. What I saw was heartbreaking. Instead of the orange and white mansion that I knew for so many years, there was a decrepit, burned burned remnants of a house. The wood was charred and blackened. Beams and door frames had fallen over and disintegrated into ash. There had surely been a fire sometime long ago. I stood to get a better look at the ruins and felt my mother come up beside me. You okay, Jack? she asked, visibly concerned. Yeah, I just hit my head, I responded. Be careful, sweetie, she said, and don't go near that house. It's dangerous. I nodded. I stood, looking at the lot for a long time. After a while, the wind began to pick up. It was a pleasant summertime breeze, and there was a faint odor in the air. It smelled of oranges. The sexual tension killed me throughout it's, the. It is. It's very creamy, delicious. It's yes. Um, <laughs> oh man! It's an interesting take. Happy Halloween, everyone! Happy Halloween, you guys! guys. We're this is going to be released like two days before Halloween. We hope you enjoy it. Be safe, whatever you decide to do, and have a good time. Put on your devil horns, raise hail, because why not? Because things are only downhill from, uh, you know, Halloween. Yeah, but be careful out there. It's going to be a full moon, a blue moon. We've got a time change. Release your inner beast. Do it while you can. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening to our Spooky Stories episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If, you, if you've enjoyed our podcast, guys, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore LRH underscore pod. Also, if you have any stories that you'd like to share with us, any feedbacks, questions, comments, concerns, um, you can find us at, or you can email us at show at gmail.com. Yeah, and be sure to check us out on Patreon as well if you really want to help us out. Patreon.com slash the LRH podcast. We've got our tiers up. We've got some great ideas for the future, and we're starting to post regularly on there. So once again, we really hope you guys enjoyed our spooky stories, and we hope that you have a great Halloween. If you're listening on Apple, guys, please be sure to leave us a review and a rating. That's going to mean the world does help us get on the new podcast page. We're still working on it. So every single review means the world to us right now. So once again, beat that algorithm. Yes, we got to beat the algorithm. So once again, guys, thank you for everything. We hope you have a great Halloween. And thanks for joining us here on the long road home. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. See you later. Uh